Okay, I'm just going to read from uh, John, the ninth chapter. John, the ninth chapter. And then just a couple more places. Okay, John, chapter 9. Verse 1, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man which was blind from birth, from his birth. He had congenital blindness, so obviously born at birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, teacher, rabbi, who, who did sin? Who did the sin? And this man or his parents that caused him? To be born blind because we know that sin is in the nature it's in the genetical code of man we see that in romans 5 and verse 12 and when adam begot a sin a son after his likeness and we can see in the second adam how we've been created by jesus christ in his likeness so this man was they asked why was he born blind Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned, nor his parents. In other words, this wasn't because uh, of their particular sins that were passed on. And we'll see what, that, what he meant when he was teaching him this, teaching uh, his disciples this. But that the works of God should be made manifest, manifest. And notice what it says, in him, in this individual particular and then he said, I must work the works of him that sent me. He and he alone must work the works of, of the Father, God the Father that sent him, while it is the day. And the day would be the expression of when he came as the light of the world in John 8, 12. And we see that Jesus was the light. He, he would be the light for every man that came into the world. Then he said, the night comes when no man can work. And that's the, obviously, this is speaking and going into eternity. Verse 5 says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of his spit, and he anointed and smeared it on the eyes of of the blind man with the clay and said unto him go wash in the pool of Siloam which is is by interpretation sent he went his way therefore in other words he obeyed he went his way therefore and washed and came seeing and this is a beautiful type here of the fact that once we were we received Christ as our salvation we need a constant washing now to experience the incredible beauty of Christ in us as his vessels. The very beauty of it. We need this constant washing. And that's what Jesus was teaching in John chapter 13 in those first 10 verses. But if we look at this, we see very clearly that Jesus went to one individual. You will see he fed thousands. We know in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the three synoptics in the Gospel of John. 
a minimum of between four and 5,000 men, not including women and children. But the fact of the matter is that even those four to 5,000, he fed them as individuals. And you and I are his individual. You and I are. And he went to this one man. But you see, his specific healings that he did, he went to individuals. And that brings out a beautiful picture. That why would God do this? Why would God in Jesus Christ do this? And we have the answers very beautifully in the scriptures. And now I'm going to read from Psalm, the eighth chapter. And then we'll go to Hebrews, the second chapter. In in, in Psalm uh, 8, verse 1, it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name, the nature of your person and your work that you've accomplished in all the earth. Who's that? That's for us. He's our Lord, and he's the excelling treasure in us as individuals in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And God wants us to hear this, all of us this morning, as his individuals, each of us, each of us. Everything he did, he did precisely for each of us as individuals. Did you know that we are like the stars? No one star is made like the others, even though you cannot number them. Did you know and did I know that all the snow that's ever fallen, every single flake that has ever fallen, not one has ever been the same as the other. But they're all sent from him. They're all his creation. And God wants us to know these things. Who, so, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who has set your glory above the heavens. Now, when it says this, I want us to think of this. Who is the one, the only one, who ever glorified God the Father on the earth, and thus God, with his Son glorifying him, has set him above the heavens? I want us to think about this. Think about it. Because when it says he set his glory... Who brought that out more than Jesus Christ? Listen to this now. And when he set him there above the heavens, he set the individual that's received him in him above. And in Ephesians 2, 6, you and I as individuals together, but as individuals are seated in heavenly places with him in his glory above everything. And so in verse 2, it says, well, even out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, have you done what? Have you done what? Ordained strength. Have you ordained it? You have made your judgments even to come out of the mouth of babes because because of your enemies. Think about that. You see, all Christ's enemies and all our enemies, us being in Christ, they don't even have any way of knowing him like you and I do as individuals. We're his babes, we're his children. And because of your enemies, that you might still the enemy and the avenger. Now listen, this is where it says this. When I consider the heavens... 
And that means <laughs> as far, we only know as far as those ships that go out into outer space and those, uh, t whatever they are, those things that they sent out, these, these microscopes to see small, the telescopes, Hubble spacecraft. We only know that far, and it's mind-boggling. But that's only as far as they have gone. But the truth of the matter is, when it says, when I consider the work of the heavens, because in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, it says he, listen, he inhabits eternity <laughs> in his creation. <laughs> oh boy, he inhabits it. Think of it, of all his creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars. We see this, we can see it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. We can see it in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. He's talking about all his creative acts, which, by the way, he did through his son in John 1, 3. The one who put on humanity to identify with us as individuals. He created everything in John 1, 3, in Colossians 1, and verse 16. Everything that was created, you see it again in Hebrews, the second chapter. He created everything. And when I consider the heavens, just think about this. All his, as far as you and I can go, forever, all eternity, in the beauty of his physical creation, this is what it's saying. The work of his fingers, <laughs> excuse me, the moon, <coughs> The moon and the stars which you have ordained set in their place. What is man? One single man. One single individual in comparison to all of that. What is man that you would even think of him, mindful of him, visit him? And the son of man that you visited him. Well, you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. This happened in the garden before the fall. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. The first Adam had that. He had that dominion. We see that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea, O oh Lord, when we think of what we are individually in comparison to everything else, our Lord, how excellent is your name, how excellent is your person, the person Christ, and how excellent is his work, meaning his person and his work in us, his individuals. How excellent is your name in all the earth. There will come a time when all the earth will know. Isaiah 59 verse 14. Jeremiah 31. 31 to 34. All earth is going to be. All earth will know him. But no one will ever outknow him. Like you and I do in Christ. Because that's his glory. His son. That he is set above everything with each individual in him. Then in Hebrews, the second chapter, Hebrews chapter 2.
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore we, we, that's all of us in Christ, because Christ is in us, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. God, God wants us to give earnest, quick receiving of the things that he's even declared to us as we gather around Christ, the head, as his body. He wants us to take heed to the things which we have heard and don't let them slip away. Don't let them run out of us like a leaky vessel. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, you see that in, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and 3.19, in Galatians, I should say, not Genesis, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, then how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with all kinds of miracles and gifts. All of these miracles and gifts, gifts here, the better word is distributions of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now here's verse 5. For unto the angels, listen to this, unto the angels, has he not put in subjection to the age that's to come? He has not done that. He has not put them, the angels, into subjection. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3, he has put us in Christ above those angels to rule and reign over them for all eternity. No, for unto the angels has he not put in subjection Submission to the age that to come, whereof we speak. Verse 6, but in a certain place testified, what is man? What is one single man? And this is how it's to be read. What is one single man? Now, one man, we have the one new man. That is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, the body of Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it's made up of specific individuals. No one alike than the other, just like the stars. We may think there's such a thing as twins that you can't tell the differences, difference between, but God sure does, because no one is alike. No one is specifically made alike. Well, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. A little, and for here it says, for a little while you made him a little lower than the angels. Meaning, you made, he made every one of us a little bit lower for a while than the angels until we met Christ. Just a little bit lower. A little bit lower. He made him a little bit lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. That's our first start in our first Adam. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And you can, you can start at verse 45 and go to 49 and see the difference between the two Adams, the first Adam and the second Adam. Verse 8 says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. I want us to think about that. Did you know that he hasn't left one thing in us, about us in Christ, undone already right now? 
on this earth that we, as we have Christ in us. He hasn't let one single thing left undone that's not subject to him whose love for us will never change and whose plan for us has to do with the perfection, each of us, each plan for us, has to do with the perfection of Christ in us and the works that he's accomplished in each individual. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. What does that mean? How do I have a clearer understanding of that in Hebrews 2 and verse 8? And this is what makes Hebrews necessary. This is what for the Christian, by the way. And not just the, the so-called Pauline uh, doctrines when they were the uh, scriptures epistles, when they're the Pauline, where they were the Christ epistles given through Paul as a vessel. Well, Ephesians, the first chapter, all things under his feet. Well, Ephesians 1, verse 18 says this, that the eyes of your understanding, being light, being enlightened, that means specific, you get right preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ so that you can see clearly who Christ is in you and who you are in him. The eyes of your understanding being lit up that you may know what is the hope of his calling, which has to do with you that's finished in Colossians 1 and verse 27, and that and what the riches of his glo the glory of his inheritance in these saints, each individual, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of the might of his power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he did that with us in Romans 8, 11 when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, far above, you we see it again here, far above all principality, everything the enemy can do that coming against you, all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this particular age, this is the right way to read the scriptures, not world, but also in that, age which is to come, and that age is the age of eternity. It's a time of eternity. Christ is that eternal life, by the way. It's not even an age, by the way, a particular time period. Christ is that eternal life, 1 John 5, 11, John 17, uh, 2 and 3. And he gave that son to give to life, give life to who he will to raise. And John 5, giving him all judgment in John 5, 22, and raising who he will and, and from the dead and giving them life in John 5 and verse 23. And it, look, in Ephesians 1, 22, and has put all things under his feet and gave him, that is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Are we the body of Christ? Is Christ the head? Are we the body? Do we have feet? That's what it's saying. Because of Christ, all things are under our feet because we're his body. All things, not just some. Not just some circumstances. Not just some situations. No, listen, his plan has been perfected in eternity before we were born. It's what makes it necessary for us to constantly depend upon him. Constantly to go in prayer to him, which teaches dependence. So he can minister these truths to us. And so, again, here in Hebrews, again in the second chapter, in verse 8, Hebrews 2, verse 8, you have put all things in, in subjection under his feet. 
who are his feet. For in that he put all in subjection unto him, he left nothing that is not put unto him. Do we understand that? That even means what the enemy means for evil in Genesis 50 and verse 20. God means for good. He means it for absolute good. But now, it says, we see not yet all things put unto him. But one thing we can see in 2.9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower, listen to this, a little lower, okay, a little bit lower than the angels, not for, but by the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, for it was everything about him. For whom are all things, here we see it, here's Hebrews 2.10, with John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16, for it became him. It was the most necessary thing for him who created everything for all, that's for all, all eternity. Created it all, but it became him. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto his glory. You see that in John 17, 22, 23, and 24. And bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain, the leader of their salvation, complete through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies, Jesus Christ, and they, the individuals that are sanctified, are all of one, for which cause, the cause of his love through grace, he is not ashamed because there's no shame in love. In God's love for us, there is no shame, none. He is, for this cause, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name unto my brethren. This is for all eternity, by the way. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15 and 28. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children, you and I, individuals, which God gave to me. If you have children, do you love them all together or do you love them individually? You love them individually in their own individuality as parents. It's the way God does. Verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of blood and flesh, because you've got blood before you have flesh, it's always that way, he also likewise took part of the same, meaning, again, he did not have a sin nature, he had a human nature. And we'll see what this means here. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject unto bondage. For verily, truthfully, truly, 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 he did not take hold of the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Who was the seed of Abraham? It was Isaac. Who was Isaac? A product of Abraham and Sarah, or was it a supernatural birth? was it a supernatural seed that was given to them in, in both their places of death, and it was. You see, he took on the seed of Abraham, which would speak of Christ, and that seed was in Genesis 3, 
and verse 15. The seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, and that's Jesus Christ. He's put all things. We are in him, and we are his feet, and he's put all things under us. Every single thing. Every single thing he has put under us. Every single thing. There's not one thing about you and I that he's left undone. And that's what makes it necessary for us to be near him, to trust him, to not forget him, to not doubt him, to not go by our feelings, to not go by bad emotions, to not allow any other thought than Jesus Christ, who's the full thought of God, to take place in our mind. No thought other than his has a right in us because even we are not our own in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We were bought with a price. And we need to glorify God in our spirit, in our soul, and our body, which are the Lord's and not ours, by the way. We were bought with a price and we couldn't pay. And so this is what brings this out here. Verse 17, wherefore in all things, how many things? How many things? All things, listen, all things, it behooved them to be made like unto his brethren. It behooved him it, in all things. What things? Who's the only one that could propitiate the Father? To deal with the sin question in John 1, 29, it would be Jesus Christ. Who would be the only one that would deal with our personal sins? In Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4. In Leviticus 16. And then in those beautiful chapters, uh, 4 through 7, through 10, and down through the two lots, bringing out propitiation, substitution and reconciliation who else could be our substitute well there's one mediator between god and men it is the man christ jesus in first timothy 2 and verse 5 and that's why in acts 4 12 there's no other name given under heaven whereby must be said whereby men must be saved than the name christ jesus so it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things, see this, in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This is teaching propitiation, substitution, and reconciliation beautifully here. For in that he himself had suffered being tempted. Now, would he have been tempted? Was he tempted? to sin if he had not a sin nature. In Hebrews 4 and verse 15, he had no sin nature. That thing, that holy one that was in the womb of that 14-year-old peasant girl in Luke 1 and verse 35 was called the son of the highest. Was there a stain or anything in him? Absolutely not. That speaks of his humanity with Christ in it. The temptation there meant that he felt all of that evil like no man ever did. No man was ever more hated than him in John 15, 18, in Psalm 69 and verse 4, in Psalm 35 and verse 19. No man was ever hated like him in Isaiah 53, 3, 4, 5, and 6. No one was ever hated like he was. No man was ever more rejected, more misunderstood than he was. No, for in that himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. 
He's able to draw them into himself. And this is what was going on here. This is what Jesus was doing here in John the ninth chapter. You know, in this sense, every single one of us were born blind. We may see with our eyes, but we were born blind. And in measure, some of us grew up different than others. But mark it down, every single one of us, everyone was born blind with a measure of hardness. To be blind, blind means your eyes have been hardened over. Light can't penetrate in this sense. But here in Jesus, in John the ninth chapter, we see very clearly that the light of God had shone in Jesus. Light that was not only for the Jews, but for every single person on the face of the earth as an individual. Second Peter 3.9, he's not willing that any man should perish. He's not slack concerning his promise that he loves the whole world in John 3 and verse 16, that he loves every single individual. He loves every single individual. Because in 2 Peter 3 and verse 8 and Psalm 90 and verse 4, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years, and his sight is past. He, he speaks from eternity. He understands from eternity. And so, but yet, here's the light of, of God Almighty shining through Jesus Christ, the God-man. Yet he was rejected. Yet he was rejected. And increasingly, as you read even through the even through John, you, you see that his his words were rejected progressively. His works were rejected progressively. His person ultimately was rejected and crucified. Why? He was rejected increasingly and utterly. And so we will if if Christ tarries. So will we, and we're seeing it in this country. We may have our head in the sand like the ostrich, but you can know this for sure. The spirit of the world is absolute hatred for Jesus Christ. You can see that in Genesis, the fourth chapter, through Cain, who functioned under Satan, who was the first murderer in eternity in John 8 and verse 44, and came under him, Cain under him, refusing the right sacrifice of Christ, functioned under him, and he ended up murdering his brother. Why? Because there was hatred for Christ in the sacrifice that Abel brought. And we bring that because we have Christ in us. In Colossians 1 and verse 27. But, that, but then it became a deadly hatred. You know, it's happening all over the world to our brothers and sisters that are in Christ all throughout the world. There's deadly hatred. And there wasn't a specific miracle that, was, that, that Jesus Christ did here in the ninth chapter. He did his first miracles there we see in John the second chapter. He turned the water into wine. I love the Bible. I love it. Because we're ever learning. Ever learning. There were six water pots of stone. Let's think about that. There were six water pots of stone. Six is man's number. This is John the second chapter. We're taking a little side thing here. There were six. That's man's number. It was filled up with water. He told them, go and fill them up with water. And we're just water. We need wine. The wine of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the types. Wine makes glad the heart of man. You see that in Proverbs the right way, by the way. 
The, there's the right way of that, by the way. There's a crystal clear right way about that in the Bible. And then he filled them up with what? He filled them up with wine, with gladness. That wine makes glad the heart of man. The heart of man. Not that man has to get drunk. Wine was never meant for that, by the way, ever and, and at any time. In God's creation, in Proverbs 20, verse 1, in Proverbs 23, and verse 31, and back at 2, and verse 15, wine was never meant for that way, ever. It was medicinal, yes, for Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, and verse 23. But he did his first miracle. But here in John, the ninth chapter, there is no miracle. But what do we hear? What do we hear? We hear his words. His word is being spoken. But in the midst of him speaking this word, in the midst of it, there was unbelief all around him. I want you to pic picture it. Here is Jesus Christ, the glory and lit up glory of God Almighty. He was the fullness of the Godhead bodily in Colossians 2.9. He is lit up with all of who God is. Not in his outward appearance, in Isaiah 53 and verse 2, he was not what we would say a good-looking man. But there was glory emanating throughout him. In John 1 and verse 14, as he was filled up with all that grace and truth is. But it, right in the midst, here's a blind man. Here is Jesus Christ. Here are his disciples to learn things about him. And then all around them is just unbelief, mocking unbelief and deadly hatred towards this person just like it is in this world system today that's why you don't have to go out of the body of christ and go to go into a worldly system for you or your family then want to make that crystal clear we said it the other day teaching starts in the home period those are the scriptures and that is you will find that in, in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. You can read it for yourself. They're to be taught in the home, and then when they can, in, in, in measure, as women would teach the younger little boys and girls, we see the order of God in that. Godly men and women, listen, godly men and women, period. You don't want anyone else teaching your children. You don't want another person doing that no matter what it is, and no matter what they say is necessary for them. It's not. It isn't. God is more than enough, and he has a specific and perfect order. That's his local assembly. That is godly parents to teach them in the home. And so here's the picture. He's there. He's right there. And all of this hatred and rejections all around him. And what does he do? He's after one person, one person. Here's the light. Here's his glory coming out, speaking his very word, which is his very nature, by the way, his very nature. And yet they were still in unbelief. They were still in unbelief. And that unbelief, listen, that unbelief is called rejection and deadly hatred. You want to know what unbelief is? That's what it is. They don't believe on him. Some still don't. You ever try and convince someone? 
They, they don't believe on him. Why? Why don't people believe on him? Why don't people receive? Why don't Christian men and women receive his word? Why do they reject it? Why do they resist it when it's been given? Because of unbelief. Period. Because of unbelief. And that unbelief, which is, which is not a peaceful state in Isaiah 15, 7, 19 to 21, when we don't experience that peace because we're near him, we get afar off. When parents get afar off from Christ, from godly absolutes, you know who they're going to take with them. They're going to take them, their, their young with them. And then it stirs up all the mud and, and mire, the mud in us. That's what we're like when we get away from him. But here, they did not believe on him. And what was the cause? They don't bow to him. They don't humble themselves. They don't bow to their own ruin. What does it take? And God was teaching me this, and it was a hard lesson for me. But nevertheless, he taught it to me, that he's patient. He does not give up on people. Even when you see their ruin. Because, but they don't bow. And, and that can, that's part of our suffering, by the way. Righteous suffering. They don't bow to their own ruin. And neither do they bow to the grace of God. Because they don't bow their own ruin. And boy, we need to pray for our loved ones, for family members, for friends, for neighbors. All of them, we need to keep them in prayer. Continually keep them in prayer. And to pray for the lost, we do. But still, did that stop him from coming down? Do we think that he didn't know that? All the hatred, but that he would come down? That's John 1.9. He's the light that came down from heaven right into the midst of the darkness of this world system where all individuals were functioning. And he was the light that potentially could light every single man. And whosoever will can come in Revelations 2 and verse 17. Whosoever will may come. We see that clearly. But, then he, but that he comes down to meet man. That is bringing out again Psalm 8. Verse 4, in Hebrews 2 and verse 6. What is one single man? Listen, listen to this. And boy, did he make this real to me. And teaching me that he never gave up on me in all of my ruin. He comes down to one single man. Did you know that Jesus would have done this if it was one individual? Because his love isn't different. They're different individuals but are all equal in his love. Did we know that? That's why you never compare yourself with someone else. You're his own unique design. He designed you in a way that only you could reflect his glory with Christ in you as that treasure. He could come down. He came down to one man to reveal God who was unknown. You know, when Paul preached to those that were in Athens, all this Greek mythology and philosophy that is so fused in Christianity today. Boy, we need to know the difference. We need to protect our children. 
greatest place is the home. The greatest place is the word of God. There's where the instruction is. I can't state it clearly enough. Clearly, clearly enough. You don't have to go out anywhere else. You do not have to do that. We, we, you teach, we teach our children. You teach your children everything that they need to know and function in. God did it. And that's why he gave parents, period. That's why he gave parents to do it and not give it over to someone else to do it. This is very, very key for our, for our children. But he came down and Paul there was preaching. And you know what it said? This is what the philosophy of the world will tell you. You have to remember that the angel, Satan, is an angel of light, meaning he will cause others to try and convince Christians they need to do this for themselves and their children. No, you do not. You do not need to do that at all. No, you do not need to do that. Don't let others that aren't even born again, that don't even know a thing about God, tell you what you need to do and that you need to do for your children. Never, ever. I cannot stress this, the importance of it enough for one individual. Cannot stress it enough. Can't do it enough. Paul taught to them. And you know what they had on their altars? And they were worshiping. Listen, listen. When we don't worship Christ, when unbelievers don't worship God, they worship demons. And it comes out in their philosophy, in the way that they tell you that, that you need to do and to make you and your child a success in the world. Christ is the greatest success. He's the greatest teacher. We learn by his life. We walk in his steps as parents in Psalm 37 and verse 23 and in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. And we ought to walk like Jesus walked in the home in 1 John 2 and verse 6. And how we live our life and our conduct, that will teach the children everything they need to know. And then anything else and how they need to function in this earth, we teach them in the home. You teach them manners. You teach them how to do things. Yes. There's no question about it. Not that they don't need to, to be around others, but to have that in their life to be around others, they can be a little witness. They can be a little light. And if you don't believe me, you ask Barbara about her children. I heard her son, Eric, back in the wooden chapel. I call it the wooden because we built these. <laughs> it was all wooden chairs on a wooden floor. You want to talk about noise. And the whole place was wooden up on top. And thousands of people in there. Thousands of people. I got how old was Eric? 12. I was going to say 12. He's 12. He got up there and he was quoting the word of God like you would not believe. <laughs> and people were marveling. Adults. Adults were marveling. I wonder where that started. I wonder where did that start? And an out, outside influence? Never. Started in the home. There's no question about it. Started right in the home. You know what they have on they had on their altar, and it's and it's indicative of the whole world system. They're going to teach you how to live as a religious man. That's the Jews. How to live as a religious man. Then how to function as a great success, and how to do everything just right with Greek philosophy. And where do both of those things come from? If they don't come from God. They had on their altars in Acts 17, 22 to 24, they worshipped the unknown God. <laughs> and in worshipping the unknown God, were they worshipping him? No. Who were they worshipping? Influence. 
from the atmosphere, telling people how they should live and what they need to do and how, where they need to go to learn how to do it. You won't see that in Titus. You won't see that in 1 Timothy, the book of Titus, and 2 Timothy. That is teaching God's order in 1 Timothy. How to function in order. And 2 Timothy with Titus is teaching how to function in the midst of disorder. They said the unknown God. But you know what? It didn't stop him. Did it stop Paul from preaching to them? Nope. Nope. And all their ruin. And all their ruin. Oh boy. I know one thing. God never gave up on me in the midst of all my despair and my utter helplessness ever, ever. And you may be an upper outer or a down and outer. I don't care how we grew up or what those influences were. Everyone was born blind. Everyone was born with, a, with, a, with, a, with some hardness that, that had to be softened, and that is by Jesus Christ positionally he's given us him and then we see it we see it very very beautifully very very beautifully in our experience so that we can grow in our experience and in equal the position that we have in christ of course and we're going to do that for all eternity in ephesians 3 and verse 19 but you know god always pursues his ways jesus always pursued his way with his love and in first corinthians 13 4 love it endures. It can put up with evil and negative people without being affected. And, it, and that's macrothumia. Bear up under when evil and hatred, <clears throat> deadly hatred and rejection is being spewed against us. We can bear up under it because we have Jesus and he's in our midst and he's our light. And then every circumstance and situation, upamoni, we're more than conquerors in Romans 8.37 because it's his love that's done it. And so we see this. Then he goes forward. Jesus continues to go forward. Did the rejection stop? It didn't. It increased. But did it stop him in his love? Did it, it stop him from going to the cross? And this is where we need to understand and we've said this previously, but in John the 18th chapter, in those first nine verses, those men that came in the garden did not take him. He spoke the word there. You'll see it in John the 18th chapter. He, all he had to, have, had to do was speak the word. And with such power, he said, I am. They fell back. They were armed to the teeth. Did they take him? No. No. And no man can take us either. No man has power over us. No man. Listen, no. And don't let doubt and fear and rebellion and stubbornness and resistance have power over you and me. And by the way, death in John 10, 17 and 18, specifically 18, never took him. He gave himself over to death. We must realize in John 19, 30, when Jesus was on the cross he wasn't like this, shriveled up, dying, and saying, it is finished. It was a complete, it was called tetelestai in the Greek. And it meant, he went, it is finished. 
speaking with power over death. <laughs> that's him, and that's him in us. He's all the power we need. He's all the wisdom that we need. He's all that we need. And he's all, he's everything in Colossians 3.11. He's all in all. Well, he said, I must work the works of, of him that sent me. And what a privilege to be sent. While it is the day, while it's the day of grace, right now, while it's this specific day of grace, because then the night's going to come when Christ comes back, when men will work no more. He said, when I am in the world, and how is he in this particular world system right now? He's Christ, it's Christ in us as individuals. You and I have an individual specific plan of God in our life. Every detail has not passed his knowledge. In 1 John 3.20, he knows all things. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is the day. Night comes when no man works. When I'm in the world, I am the world's light. I am the world's light. And here you see, and we'll close with this, here you see he reaches out to one man in the midst of all of this. It's all being directed at him. This hatred, deadly hatred, mocking, unbelief coming against him. And he sees one blind man from birth. And his disciples begin to ask him, saying, Rabbi, teacher, which sinned? Which one sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he should be born blind? You know what they... You want to talk about Greek theology? You know why he thought this way? You know why the Jews were thinking this way? Because you know what was prevalent in their day? You know how much prevalent garbage today is in our country, is in kindergartens, in schools throughout in our country right now? Because at that time in Judea, where the disciples were, there was known as this Pythagorean fancy. The Greeks taught it. Pythagorean, some kind of a snake, some kind, and you know the enemy's a snake. He's subtle in Genesis three one. He's subtle in Second Corinthians eleven three, and he comes as an angel of light in Second Corinthians eleven verse fourteen, and he'll tell you how you should have good manners, and what you should do, and how you should function in this world system. Ah, humbug! <laughs> you know what they taught? You know what the Pythagorean fancy was? that a man might have sinned in a previous existence on earth and be punished for it in an after state also when he comes back on earth. You, you, wouldn't you think that would be crazy for someone to believe that? You wouldn't believe what people believe. You wouldn't believe what Christians believe. You wouldn't believe what they're taught to believe. They drew from that notion in Genesis 25, 22, the notion of sin before birth. <laughs> now, when they come out of the wombs, each of us came out of the womb, we came out with a sin nature that was passed on in Romans 5, 12. That's why Psalm 58, verse 3 says, as soon as they come out of the womb, the babies, as sweet as they are, it says they speak lies. They, can, they know how to manipulate. Anyone ever teach them that? Did they sin before birth? No. So that does away with all this nonsense. You see the preciseness of the word of God. It's very, very precise. 
and what we need and what we need. So in other words, that, that God would punish, would inflict punishment anticipatively on those who would eventually sin. Isn't that evil? He doesn't think that way. It's unsound. It's unbiblical. It's error. It goes against his anticipated love and his prevenient grace. He went right after him. He went right after this one, one individual who was blind and was in a ruined state. You know, sometimes when people, and basically when people give up, because really, when others have given up on them, when others have rejected them, then they just, that's the enemy teaching them to do that to themselves. And then they're hopeless. And then they may cry out in a way that we don't understand, using a different language at times. And, and uh, but God doesn't quit. He goes after the one. He goes right after the one. He goes after them. And Father, thank you this morning that you go after the one, the one individual. And that, you know what? Each of us were that one that you went after. Each and every single one of us. Oh, Father, give us a love. Give us a love to wait in your patience the way you waited for us. When others need to be brought to a place of self-helplessness and self-hopelessness, when they need to be brought to that place like you brought us in the patience of your love, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, and while you were waiting in your love to be so gracious and manifest that love in Isaiah 30 and verse 18, thank you for your beautiful touch on us and how you desire to do that to others. In Jesus' name, amen.